Hey everybody, this is Greg Pettix, and you're listening to the 47th issue of Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. I am uh, going to do something today, which I probably shouldn't do, but this is a, half of it is a mental health podcast, even though it's about comic books, imaginary comic books that never existed. But um, it is uh, filed under mental health, under the categories of podcasting. And I guess today I'm going to show off my obsessive-compulsive disorder because I've been uh, doing a lot of work on Amazing Tales, our, uh, kind of our flagship title that started the whole comic book company, the imaginary comic book company that exists in my head. Back in 1940, this is one of the big titles that, you know, ran for 80 years or whatever. So... I'm going to have to go over some stuff I already did because I made all these changes here and there and I don't know what the differences are now. I should have made little notes. But I'll go through them real quick. Just because I don't know uh, what I've changed. So Amazing Tales. January 1941 issue. We got It's a 64-page comic. Every feature gets 12 pages. And uh, we got Hercules by Reed Crandall. Robin Hood by Mac Raboy, Scarlet Pimpernel by Lou Fine, Mowgli from the Jungle Book by Mac Raboy as well, and then Greek Myths by Various. And then that stays pretty much the same until 1945. And uh, then we have a little change there because Lou Fine leaves comic books at this point. So the Scarlet Pimpernel is taken over by Everett Raymond Kinsler. Then in 1946, we have another change because Macroboy leaves the comic book industry. So Robin Hood and Mowgli, which Macroboy was drawing, will now be taken over by Matt Baker. And I'm pretty sure I went over that, but I just wanted to reiterate. But then I'm pretty sure this is where I've started to make some, a, a lot of changes. So in 1949, Hercules will be taken over by Frank Frazetta. Robin Hood will be taken over by Joe Manili. Scarlet Pimpernel will continue under Kinsler. And Mowgli will continue under Baker. And the Greek myths will still continue as various artists. In 1950, we got some changes. Big changes. So... We say goodbye to Hercules, but we replace him with Beowulf by Frank Frazetta. We say goodbye to Robin Hood in 1950. Uh, I basically wanted that to keep going just so I could have lots of Joe Manili work before he dies in 57. But, you know, he's joined Crimson Night Force every month. And I figure in a Amazing Comics Weekly, we're gonna every time we have some good short story, be it a Western or a war comic or whatever, Joe Benili can draw everything well. So we'll be utilizing the shit out of Joe Benili, doing short stories all over the place. But, so taking over for uh, replacing Robin Hood by Joe Benili will be Natty Bumpo by Russ Heath. And then, taking over from the Scarlet Pimpernel, that'll be going away. We're going to have Seahawk 
by Reed Crandall. It was a master of pirate art, so that'll be beautiful. Mowgli from the Jungle Book is going away. And that'll be uh, replaced by D'Artagnan from the Three Musketeers and other books. And that'll be drawn by Bernard Crickstein. And then the only thing that will continue is Greek myths by various. But just for one more year, because in 1951, it's gone. And it's replaced by Divine Comedy by Basil Wolverton. So that's going to go on for three years. And then in 1954, um, up until then, uh, from 1951, everything stayed the same. But in 1954, we uh, shake things up with uh, our Beowulf's Inferno crossover by Frank Frazetta, which uh, we've talked about before, so I'm not going to get into it now. Daddy Bumpo, everything continues, sorry, um, uh, by the same artist. And then, but then Divine Comedy, which is now, you know, gone. We've, we've told the whole Divine Comedy. And then it's, it's featured in Beowulf's Inferno. So the fifth feature will just be short stories by various. So we'll just be doing uh, adapting great short stories from literature. Edgar Allan Poe, it's the horror era of comics, you know, the mid before the comics code. So we could uh, have really gnarly versions of all the Edgar Allan Poe stories. You by uh, Ghastly Graham Ingalls. Um. Just very short stories. I imagine we'll get Bernard Crickstein to draw a lot of them, though. Because he loved literature, and he's a great artist. Uh, okay, so that's the way things are going to be until 1957. So then Beowulf is going away because it gets his own comic. And uh, Daddy Bumpo, we're going to bump him up to the, the first feature. And that's going to be now taken over by Frank Thorne. Because Russ Heath is drawing that Beowulf comic every month, so he won't have time to do Danny Bumpo anymore. So we're getting Frank Thorne in there. Seahawk will continue by Reed Crandall, as well as D'Artagnan by Bernard Krigstein. But then we have a new feature for a few years, Canterbury Tales by Bill Elder. And then the fifth feature will just be more short stories, various. Every issue will be a different adaptation of a great short story. From literature, 1958, the next year, we're starting a new feature, Captain Nemo. And we're going to get, this is kind of a reach, but, uh, you know, I don't think it is, because we pay really good. And a lot of these artists from uh, foreign countries got paid shit. And uh, breaking the American market was a dream for them, even uh, with the pay that they were doing then. But we'd be paying way more than any comic book company in reality. So we're going to get Alberto Breccia, the great uh, South American artist, to do Captain Nemo. Yeah, by the late 50s, Breccia's amazing. He's uh, probably one of the best cartoonists in the world. I think uh, many comic book critics would uh, not disagree with me. And uh, that's just going to be beautiful under him. It's going to be great. So Captain Nemo. New feature. Natty Bumpo is going to continue by Frank Thorne. And, uh, but Seahawk is going to be done. 
and Seahawk is gone to be replaced by another pirate feature, Captain Blood. And we're going to keep Reed Crandall on that because he's such a good pirate artist. Also in 58, the Canterbury Tales continue by Bill Elder. And the fifth feature is short stories. 1960, Captain Nemo by Alberto Breccia remains our lead feature. But we're going to introduce another Jules Verne character, uh, Rober the Conqueror. And we're going to get Alfredo Alcala to draw that. So um, they're going to be the first and second feature for years in Amazing Tales. And because they're such natural uh, nemesi, uh, you know, one's the master of the sea, one's the master of the air, they'll be getting into all kinds of crazy crossovers all the time. Getting into little battles, I imagine, more than team-ups. And... um, I guess supervillain team-ups they might have every now and then. But it'll basically be like, after we adapt all the books that they were in, we're going to set these two against each other. It's going to be epic. An epic war. And then Captain Blood will continue by Reed Crandall. But then, 1960, we have a new feature. Alan Quartermain. And we're going to get Hugo Pratt to draw that. And I uh, talked about it a few episodes ago. So you know about Hugo Pratt. That's going to be beautiful. And then Natty Bumpo's continuing under uh, Frank Thor. Under his beautiful penmanship. 1961. Everything's pretty much the same. Except Natty Bumpo is going away. We're done telling tales of Natty Bumpo. And we're going to start, uh, Jack Kirby will start adapting the Norse myths for us as the fifth feature every issue throughout the 60s. He's going to be doing these. Okay, 1963. Um, it looks like almost everything's the same except Alan Quartermain, our fourth feature which has been drawn by Hugo Pratt. Around 1963, he's already publishing his first Corto Maltese stories. He's becoming a worldwide sensation. So I figure, eh, he might not want, he might not want to draw these, like, you know, goofy American comics. So I'm getting Victor de la Fuente, the great, great Spanish artist, to draw Alan Quartermain. He was amazing. If uh, He didn't do a lot of comics, at least by the time I was a kid in the 70s. He was already, like, you know, so fancy pants that he was doing book illustrations, book covers. But every now and then you'd see, like, he'd do a comic for Warren uh, Comics, uh, black and white, you know, magazines, and just amazing stuff. A great cartoonist, uh, just really good at, like, blood and thunder and action. I mean, I think he kind of... Everything I saw in mine was a little more barbarian-ish. But I'm sure, you know, we didn't always start that way. Before barbarians were cool. So, uh, he was just a great adventure artist all through the... I think he even came out in the late 50s. By 63, he's already De La Fuente. He's already great. And, uh, yeah, so that's the only change in 1963. Every feature is the same. And the artists are the same, except for that. Okay, 1966, we still got Captain Nemo by Breccia, Rober by Alcala, but Captain Blood is leaving. Uh, 
And uh, we figure the time of pirates is uh, maybe uh, waning. And um, But we're getting a new feature, Dracula by Vincente Alcazar. And then everything else is the same. That's the only change. 1968, we're getting rid of Captain Nemo. And we're replacing Captain Nemo with Sinbad by Rudy Nebres. We're also getting rid of Rober the Conqueror. And we're going to replace that with El Cid by Esteban Morato. And uh, so those are two major changes. All the other three features stay the same. 1970. We, uh... Pretty much first three features are all still the same. Sinbad, Dracula, El Cid, same artists. But Alan Quartermain will be taken over by Alex Toth. The the great cartoonist cartoonist. And Norse Myths are going away by Kirby. And that will be taken over by the Bible. Uh, an adaptation of the Old Testament of... Uh, we're going to have some Christian mythology finally because we've had Greek myths and we've had Norse myths and now we're going to have Christian myths. So and that will be drawn by Victor de la Fuente who has been kicked off the Alan Quartermain strip. So now he's going to draw the Bible. Turns out he actually did do some Bible adaptations, Bible comics. And he did a lot of stuff. Okay, so 1972... The lead feature, Sinbad, will be uh, taken over by Mike Kaluta. Rudy Nebris, uh, at this point, already has a monthly comic for us. So, you know, I figure I don't want to overwork the guy. So Mike Kaluta's going to take it over for a year. Kaluta never stuck around that long. So uh, we're, we're lucky to get a year out of him. I'm sure we'll need some fill-ins, too, for uh, that year. He might not be able to make all the deadlines. And then everything else is exactly the same. Um, 1973, Kaluta leaves in bed, exhausted. And uh, I don't think he's ever done a year of a monthly comic ever, even though it's only 12 pages. But Sinbad will be taken over by Barry Windsor Smith, who at the time, I believe, might have just been Barry Smith. I don't know if you put that Windsor in yet. So that would be amazing. Fresh off of his uh, Barbarian run and Clawfang the Barbarian for us. And, you know, uh, still this is almost like a Barbarian comic, Sinbad, you know. It's kind of like a sweet, generous Barbarian story. So that's going to be the lead feature. That's going to be freaking beautiful. Then we have a second feature. And because uh, we're losing Dracula. Because, uh, you know, we've told all the tales of Vlad the Impaler. And then later on, as he becomes a vampire, leading up to the novel. And in 1972, we adapt the novel. So now we figure, you know, we're done for now. There'll be various tales of Dracula in the Amazing Comics universe. Um, in flashbacks and when he gets his old comic, you know, in 72. There'll also be, like, he'll be popping up in, like, the World War II comics. Maybe in, maybe even the Westerns that will run in, have a run-in with Dracula. So you'll find out what Dracula's been up to from 
the end of the novel, original novel, to the modern day when his comic begins over time. So, take it over from Dracula is Gilgamesh by Richard Corbin. And uh, then we still got El Cid by Esteban Morano, Alan Quarterman by Alex Toth, and the Bible by Victor de la Fuente all continue. So we got uh, one new feature, two new artists. Okay, that goes on for three years. Um, 1976. Um, okay, so the year previously, uh, the summer previously, we had just adapted Frankenstein. So we're going to continue the adventures of Frankenstein after the original book. He's just wandering around Europe or wherever he lands, Antarctica, and um, meeting all these various characters in the Amazing Universe, maybe even. Uh, maybe meeting the Western characters. Whoever. Um... And that's going to be drawn by Bernie Wrightson. I figured Bernie Wrightson, you know, 12 pages a month. He wasn't doing many monthly comics. But, of course, like I always say, we pay way more than any comic company ever really did. And it's 12 pages a month. And Bernie Wrightson did love Frankenstein. Kind of dedicated a decade of his life to drawing the character. Gilgamesh, uh, Richard Corbin's going to leave. Obviously, us having Richard Corbin for three years is already a stretch. Because around 76, he's becoming, you know, well-known throughout the world. We're going to have Michael Plue to take over, though. And that should be beautiful. Uh, Plue, just a very imaginative artist. He can draw whatever Gilgamesh throws his way. Also that year, uh, we have a new feature. Because Alan Quartermain is now gone. Uh, in 1976, we're introducing 1,001 Nights. A thousand and one nights. And we're going to get Mike Kaluta to draw that. See how long he can hold up on that comic. And, uh, of course, there could always be fill-ins. So, you know, if you think it's not realistic that Mike Kaluta could draw 24 straight monthly issues, even though it's only 12 pages, you know, there'll be fill-ins. And then El Cid and the Bible keep chugging along. In 1978, Frankenstein... Uh, will be taken over by Steve Bissett because, you know, Bernie Wrightson can't stick around for that long. He's got bigger fish to fry. So that'll be amazing. Steve Bissett, master of horror. And then we got a new feature because uh, we're getting rid of El Cid and we're going to bring in, we're bringing back Hercules and we're going to tell now tales of everything after the Greek era. You know, that first 10 years of Hercules, that was like all of the myths that the Greeks told about Hercules in that time, dealing with all the Greek gods. But, you know, that era ended. Uh, people stopped believing in the Greek gods. And so what the hell has Hercules been doing? Because he's still immortal. He's a lot weaker, like all the gods, but nobody believes in him. What the hell has he been doing for 2,000 years? Probably getting into some cool adventures. So... This will be an interesting comic of just Hercules. There'll be story arcs of him in, like, I don't know, Rome. And then later on, hanging out with the Visigoths and getting in fights in China. Just he'll be all over the world. Uh, just roaming around. But we're going to get Neil Adams to draw that. So, you know, Neil Adams, whatever he draws, it's going to be the best comic. So 
great. Thousand and One Nights, Kaluta's going to leave, and we're getting William Stout to take over. And uh, Gilgamesh in 78 will be taken over by Enrique Breccia. So Alberto Breccia's son, Enrique Breccia, came around in the 70s, I think even late 60s. Amazing, like totally different than his dad. Definitely, obviously, more modern style, more abstracted. Um, Really great artist, amazing. Uh, he finally actually did actually do some mainstream comics in like the 90s or the noughts. He worked for like DC, did some Swamp Thing runs. But I mean, even in the 70s, I've seen work by him. He was amazing. And, you know, just working for Spanish publishers and stuff. So I think we could have got him to draw Gilgamesh for us. And uh, that's that for 78. Of course, the Bible still continues as a fifth feature. 1980, Frankenstein keeps chugging along with Steve Bissett, probably writing and drawing it with help from Rick Veitch, like he always did, and uh, just making it into a great horror comic throughout the ages. Uh, Hercules will now be taken over by Esteban Morato, because I don't think Neil Adams can afford to stick around that long. Thousand and One Nights will be taken over by Sandy Plunkett. Uh, I don't know if I've talked about Sandy Plunkett before. I think I have. Amazing artist who just drew a few backups here and there. Like, probably published 20 pages of comic art. Maybe 40 or something. I don't know. All spectacular. Beautiful shit. And um, just never did much. And I figured maybe he was just really slow. So, you know, Thousand and One Nights. Every now and then, someone, some other artist will draw one of the nights. And Plunk will have a breather if he needs it. So, but he's going to be the set, pretty much regular artist on Thousand and One Nights for a while. And then uh, Gilgamesh by Brecky is continuing. And then we have a new feature, because the Bible's going away. Ten years of telling stories about the Bible's enough, as far as I'm concerned. We're going to start Native American Myths by the underground cartoonist Jack Jackson. Okay, so that's going to be the status quo until 1983. Steve Bissett is going to start drawing our Swamp Beast comic for uh, the, you know, the Amazing Comics group. So Frankenstein will be taken over by Ralph Reese. I've sung his praises many times before. Amazing artist. Hercules will continue by Moroto. Thousand and One Nights will continue by Plunkett. Gilgamesh, though, will be taken over by Alex Nino. And Native American Myths will continue under Jack Jackson's pen. Okay, so 1985. That's going to go on for two years. And now here's the biggest change. 1985. Amazing Tales is going to stop being a 64-page comic. Um... It's just hard finding all these tales from literature and myth. We've told almost all the cool ones. But in the spirit of it, we're going to have a new feature. So it's going to be 32 pages, basically 24 pages of story. So the main feature is going to be 16 pages. And it's this new thing called the Oddity Society. And it's going to be drawn by Joe Kubert. And basically what this is, it's the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, 
I figure of all these adaptations we've done, so many of these uh, books that were always in Classics Illustrated, they're in the 19th century. You know, that's why Alan Moore made The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen then, because, you know, you got all those great characters are running around the 19th century. These famous literary characters. Maybe that's, I guess, when the novel just became even bigger. So it's just a lot of novels. So, you know, Dr. Jekyll, characters from Dracula, and uh, just all, The Invisible Man. All these fantastical characters can meet and have this group. So basically, you know, years before Alan Moore came up with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, we would come up with the idea. And, you know, it's 1985. We probably would hire Alan Moore to write it. And uh, it would be great. So, uh, yeah, that, that's exciting because all these um, one-shot annuals we've been doing, a lot of you know, a lot of them take place in the 18th century. I'm sorry, 19th century. And, you know, you might want to see more of these characters. So uh, this will give you a chance to do that. And, uh, but, you know, it'll be written by Alan Moore, so it's going to be fucking great. Even it doesn't matter who the characters are, he'll he'll make it a great story. But you know they'll also like run into Frankenstein every now and then. He's still running around. They'll meet Hercules. Maybe fight him or get in adventures with him. Who knows? So that's gonna be uh, the main feature, sixteen pages, and then it will have an eight-page backup. And we're gonna start doing the Hindu gods. And that's going to be various. Just uh, whatever story of the of Hindu religion will um, you know get a different artist depending on the mood of the story. If it's kind of a, a lighthearted story, we'll get an artist like that. If it's like really some I don't know dark story, we'll get that kind of artist. So it'll just be various artists. We'll do various tales of the Hindu gods over the years. So that means everything else is going away. We're saying goodbye to Frankenstein, Hercules, Thousand One Nights, Gilgamesh, all those characters. And um, so, uh, and that's going to be pretty much, other than obviously Joe Kubert's not going to draw the Oddity Society for 15 years. But, uh, you know, we'll draw for a few years and then we'll have other artists. And the Hindu gods could go for 15 years. There's a lot of stories. So basically... I brought us up to the year 2000, like I said I would. Other than having the other artists for Attitude Society. So I don't even know if that's necessary. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I finally kind of finished it. And, uh, even though I got rid of almost all the features to do it, and just had turned it into an Oddity Society comic. But, you know, I kind of wanted that to be a comic. I just didn't have room in the amazing comics universe because we have too many freaking titles. So, I figure that'll be uh, the Oddity Society will have its own comic within Amazing Tales. And that's pretty much going to be the end of Amazing Tales as far as uh, having all the rotating features. and It'll pretty much just do that. I also figure Hindu Gods... Every now and then they could take a breather and we'll just tell short stories too. So that'll be sometimes the new gods, usually. But every now and then we'll take a break and get some great artists to adapt a great short story. And, uh, 
But yeah, how did these signings gonna be fun? Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, I guess that wraps up that part of it. Also, I did want to like just touch on um, uh, amazing books, cause uh, this whole t- basically it's like from the fifties on. I would like, well, at least the sixties, cause I think that's when color printing got a little cheaper and more uh, doable. But basically, since the sixties. We're not only, like, publishing, like, collections of our own comics, doing the graphic novel thing, you know, 25 years before it became popular. But we would have figured, you know, we're doing these high-quality comics that people just don't grow out of, like all the crap, cruddy comics in the Golden Age. Uh, A lot of people kept reading them and actually like them. So they, you know, rolled the dice in the 60s. Amazing Comics starts Amazing Books. And starts... uh, reprinting all their classic stuff all their great comics I'm pretty sure back then people would have bought it when uh when I, when I was a kid in the 70s there was barely any like books book books that would reprint comics it was very rare you'd go to the library there'd of course be like peanuts collections and things like that but it was like I remember reading, like, the shitty Buck Rogers collections. That comic sucks. I don't know if you've ever read the early Buck Rogers. Badly drawn, badly written. But I remember I was so desperate. I'd be like, wow, it's it's a book with comics in it. So I'd read it. I'm pretty sure kids in the 60s would have freaked out if for Christmas their parents got them a book of, like, oh, here's all the collections of, uh, I don't know, fucking Captain Action or anything. Or even the Greek myths. I've I've talked about this before. Also, the book division would be doing lots of school outreach because we have all the classics illustrated type stuff in Amazing Tales, adapting books. And, you know, that was always a thing where I remember in school, I mean, it was the 70s, but they'd have these little books, like comic books there that were like adapting all the, like Treasure Island and Frankenstein. And um, because they figured, you know, you know, kids aren't going to read these books. They might not. So at least let's give them the story in easy-to-digest comic book form. So I talked about that before, how I think that would have been amazing if we were, like, pushing them on schools, like through Scholastic back then. I think they would have liked them. Of course, our stuff's kind of rough. It's not necessarily child-friendly. When we adapt these classics, we uh, censor as little as we can to get on the newsstands. But uh, a lot of these classics were, uh, they're not sanitized for little kids, you know. Like the Red Badge of Courage and stuff and the Iliad. They got a lot of gory stuff in them and whatever. But, you know, hopefully some schools would be like enlightened enough and just be like, well, they're the classics. They're just adapting them authentically. So there's going to be some raunchy stuff in there. So, and then on top of that, it would just, I was figuring amazing books could just do all the amazing, like, comic strip reprints, you know, giant books of Little Nemo and Slumberland and Crazy Cat and Terry and the Pirates and, you know, Hal Foster's Tarzan, Bern Hogarth's Tarzan, all the classics would be reprinting that stuff. 
that stuff would come out in smitters and smatters throughout the 50s and 60s. Well, definitely the 60s. Every now and then there'd be a book of like Tuderville Trolley comics or uh, Bringing Up Father. But um, I don't know. I think they're pretty sellable. The whole nostalgia thing. A lot of people, newspaper comic strips are very mainstream. Uh, millions and millions of Americans every day first thing they did when they picked up a newspaper was look at the funny pages. So you got this huge audience of people who are like, would probably buy these books. At the very least, out of nostalgia. But some of this shit's great, like Terry and the Pirates, you know, the beautiful art Prince Valiant. I'm sure some people would love to own that in a nice, beautiful book. So that's going to be a thing. Amazing books all this time. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We'll just be, have like a full collection of our comics history in print. And um, people, so people will be able to get the backstory without paying a million dollars for back issues. I um, also wanted to, I, I, next week I'm going to, I'm sorry, not next week, next episode, I'm going to illuminate Amazing Spotlight which I've done before, but I've really added a lot to that and hammered down some shit. So once again, it will show off my OCD and I will repeat some stuff because I have no idea where I started adding stuff and what's new compared to what I told you last time. But I've gone all the way up to like 1980 on that. And I don't think I need to go any further. And that's going to wrap up the amazing comics group for a long, long time. But since I have a little time, I did want to talk about the thing I talked about last episode, the the kind of low-budget comic book company. And I just wanted to clarify, because I changed some stuff, and I mixed some stuff around. But um, the first comic we published, the subterranean one, that's going to be magazine size. I didn't say that. Because, you know, the late 70s, I figured these are going to start around 77, 78. That's when ElfQuest and Cerebus came out. Just sold through the burgeoning direct sales market and through mail order. And they did good. So apparently there was a market for like kind of adultish adult comics. I guess they called them ground level back then, like Star Reach. Not underground, not quite underground. But definitely not overground either. So Subterranean, uh, like I said, the covers would license these, uh, reprint these great portfolio covers all through from the 70s, some of the most beautiful art. Lots of underground reprints. Usually like the slow death type stuff, science fiction horror. Not like our crumb and stuff. This is going to be trying to basically appeal to comic store kids who read Conan and stuff. and Like the way Heavy Metal did. Heavy Metal magazine had lots of great artists, but they kind of always slanted towards like having... Richard Corbin's Den or The Mercenary by Segrelis, you know, stuff that's more genre. But, um, yeah, so mostly we'll just do all the amazing Corbin reprints. We'll be reprinting almost everything he did for the undergrounds, and that'll be right there, a reason to pick up the issues. Also, the back covers will be full color, so we'll be reprinting the covers because there's some beautiful underground covers by Corbin and all the other great artists of Juan Baudet. So that's going to be the meat of when we start just uh, licensing these, paying a small reprint fee to all these underground artists so we can reprint their work. 
It's going to have the Fletcher Hank Stardust reprints. Those are going to be in the public domain. I think even back then they were. And uh, just because they're wonky. And uh, it's going to have manga reprints. Because I'm pretty sure that would be pretty cheap. You know, the Japanese manga companies would want their shit to have some exposure. And they are reprints, so... Uh, one thing I didn't mention I'd love to have in Subterranean is uh, Luther Arkwright, which I believe had already started by like 77, 78 in uh, English semi-undergrounds, like Near Myths and um, other titles. And that was like one of the early like amazing epics. You know, like Alan Moore like did the introduction to the collection. He was just like, you know, before I was doing the shit I was doing, Brian Talbot was doing that. That's the name of the creator, writer-artist Brian Talbot. Amazing detailed artwork. Soon went on to work for 2000 AD and become a beloved contributor to 2000 AD. But the Luther Arkwright stories are really, like, written at a high level. Like, there weren't many comics that were written at such a, like, I don't know, intellectual almost? Just adult, you know? Like, you couldn't just uh, read this thing while you were uh, distracted. I mean, it was, it was very detailed... Interesting script. Also, it's going to have, uh, like I said, because I think all the shit's in the public domain even then, was Dreams of a Rarebit Fiend reprints by Winsor McKay, Crazy Cat sent as the center spread by George Harriman. And then when we start actually like paying a few more things, we'd license the Hey Look strips that Harvey Kurtzman owns, because somehow he owns those, even though they were published by Timely slash Atlas. Um, and then we're going to... Uh, Later add the, as we start acquiring back catalogs, the Skywall, the black and white Warren knockoffs, we'll reprint those. When we get Atlas Comics, the 70s one, we'll start, they a handful of black and white titles that were amazing. We'll start reprinting those. And then years later in the 80s, when we buy Warren, of course, then it's going to take over. Just all that other shit will probably be all petered out by then. And then Warren reprints will, uh, that'll be most of the magazine. So I think, yeah, Subterranean's going to be 64 pages magazine size. And uh, then the other comic that we're going to introduce probably right around the same time when we start is Golden Age Classics. Because it's cheap. And all these Golden Age comics were entering into the public domain around that time in the late 70s. So it'll have like Space Hawk by Basil Wolverton, Daredevil, uh, the, the Charles Byro Daredevil. Just all the great superheroes. Any great superhero comics from that back then? The whole Pantheon, the Black Terror. And then uh, and then I think maybe even also in the initial salvo, or maybe we'll wait a little, we're going to do Pre-Code Horror, which uh, have all the great Basil Wolverton horror reprints. But just all that Pre-Code Horror, there's some stuff that's way gnarlier than you see. And I think a lot of it was probably in the public domain at that point because a lot of those companies were fly-by-night uh, just trying to exploit the the market that EC Comics had created because there was a huge boom of horror comics then. So everyone was jumping on the bandwagon. A lot of them went right out of business after a year or two, especially when the Comics Code Authority came in. And uh, so, because I remember seeing these things like reprinted in the fanzines back almost in the late 70s. I think a lot of them had already lapsed into public domain or the uh, rights weren't renewed. So I'm sure there's tons of awesome fun shit we could uh, reprint for nothing. And then, of course, we buy Tower Comics and uh, 
So we're going to have a Thunder Agents comic, just repeating all the great Thunder Agents stories. And then when we get the Atlas comics, is uh, we're going to start that Spotlight title, which was just uh, reprint all the great Atlas comics and little story arcs. Even some of the... And then Skywald had a few color comics. The Heap, a bunch of westerns. Some good artists work on some of them. I think John Severin worked on some of the westerns. So we'll probably give the, reprint some of those in the spotlight too. Give them little like one or two issue runs, depending on how long the issue lasted. Also, I definitely want to clarify, then we're going to start paying for... After all these years of basically uh, reprinting all this shit for nothing, we're going to start shelling out some money. So because we own Atlas Comics, we're going to start a monthly Wolf the Barbarian comic and a monthly Demon Hunter comic. And like I said, we could probably get Larry Hammett to at least write the Wolf the Barbarian comic. Because in the late 70s, he wasn't, you know, it was before G.I. Joe. He wasn't hot shit. Definitely Rich Buckler was doing fanzine work anyway in the late 70s. A little small press thing, so I'm sure he'd do his own character for us. Because he loved Demon Hunter. And then, you know, later on we buy American Comics Group. So we start a new comic called Herbie. But it's not all Herbie. 64 pages of just humor. Kind of, you know, <clears throat> you know, for kids. So we'll like a big thing in that will be all the Basil Wolverton humor stories from the 40s to the 50s. He he just cranked those out. He had so many zany, goofy, little comedy short stories and characters that he did for years. Powerhouse Pepper, all those guys. Powerhouse Pepper, though, seemed to me a little more adult than some of them. Just because the women were sexy in it. So I don't know if maybe that'll be something in a subterranean. But uh, I imagine it could go into Herbie, though. And uh, I was thinking we could even do the Tippy Teen comics that Tower Comics had. Tower Comics was all superheroes, except they had one, like, Archie knockoff called Tippy Teen. Then again, I've never read Tippy Teen. They could be fucking horrible. But I don't know, just to pat it out. We are the low-budget comic company. We're kind of crappy. And, uh, yeah, then, like I said, we buy Warren in 1983. And then Charlton we get in 1986, everything except the superhero comics. So then in our pre-code horror book, even though these are going to be post-code and more tame, but uh, Charlton, a lot of dross, but they had a lot of good shit over the years. And like I said, mainly... Hundreds of Steve Ditko short stories. Tom Sutton. A lot of Tom Sutton short stories. Just all these great cartoonists for years worked there. Even though a lot of it was crap. Not their stuff, but the stuff that they had to be published next to. So then all of a sudden, that this horror, little horror book will have all this influx of like reprints of great stuff. And we can do that. So I just wanted to add to that and uh, clarify... Because I've been thinking about that little comic book company. And then I was thinking, at, you know, basically all these comics will be published. It'll be like, I don't know, early 80s by the time we started getting these all out. <clears throat> We've already bought all these companies except for Warren and Charlton. And then I'm thinking, okay, so we're this comic company that's chugging along, doing pretty good. by publishing all this low-budget stuff. And uh, right around then, 1981, that's when like Pacific Comics poor small little company who just published portfolios and a few fanzine type things. That's when they lured Jack Kirby over and Neil Adams and Mike Grell. 
and got all these mainstream guys to work for them just by saying, we'll give you all the rights. So you, and you know, these guys who were totally like at the top of the heap working for Marvel in DC said, ooh, okay, I'll roll the dice on that because I can own my characters. And then of course, you know, first comics came around that became the thing in the 80s where a lot of these big Marvel DC artists who'd worked there for 10, 20 years who were hot shit went to these small independents because they promised them to, they could own the copyright. So maybe that could have been us. We would have been the ones have all these goofy little titles, but then it would be like, hey, we can expand. And it was doable that a small little company could get. So, you know, maybe we would have had all that shit. And, um, and then I was thinking too, um, even, uh, maybe acquiring Dell at some point, because I mean, man, just, just the Turok, I love those comics. We could reprint all the Turoks and the Magnuses, Magnus Robot Fighter by Russ Manning. And, um, I remember those were still being reprinted by Gold Key in the early eighties, I think even up till. They were at my dad's dental office, I remember, in the waiting room. And I thought they were crap, because they weren't Marvel DC. But now I look back and they're amazing. But also Dell, I mean, got our Herbie comic, our humor comic. We'd get all that John Stanley stuff. You know, the stuff that wasn't Little Lulu, which he didn't own, or Dell didn't own, because they licensed it from that Marge lady. But, yeah, he made all these great comedy comics all through the 50s for Dell. I think even into the 60s. So we'd have all this amazing John Stanley shit and just access to a lot of stuff because Dell mostly licensed things um, from other companies, like from movies, from TV. And, uh, but you know, they, every now and then they made some stuff, original stuff. I mean, just the total, uh, what was that called? Mars Patrol? There was like a two issue Wally Wood comic. Maybe it was four issues in the 60s. Beautiful Wally Wood art. Um, just to, science fiction war comic and uh just to get to reprint those would almost be worth buying dell and uh yeah so i've just been thinking about that low budget comic company and just want to share my thoughts and uh i guess this fits into the ocd shit too because i just talked about this last week and i barely edited anything i just reiterated almost everything i said but um i'll probably be thinking of this shit more and maybe uh, do a whole second generation The what happens after the 80s with this comic company. But, um, okay, I guess that's it. Thanks for listening. Um, have a good day.